How are we doing? There we are. All right, guys. You guys were all ready. You guys were sitting down. Usually I have to get you guys to settle, but you're, you're, you're ready to settle in. That's encouraging, I, I think. I'm excited. One other thing I want to mention before I get into my message is many of you know uh, Jeffrey Au, who is sitting down here. Jeffrey, put your hand up. Um, Jeffrey uh, showed up here, what, eight months ago, maybe, that he started coming to the church, walked up to me and said, uh, I've read the New Testament. I think Jesus is who he said he is. What should we do? <laughs> and I was just like, yeah. So we, we prayed. Jeffrey has been baptized here at, uh, at CA Church Town Center. Uh, and uh, he has, as of, man, just a few weeks ago, been accepted into the Canadian Navy. Right? And it's shipping out on Saturday. Well, shipping out. He's heading. He, <laughs> and they're not even training him. They're just. Uh, he's going to be heading to Quebec next Saturday. So, guys, if you could be in prayer for Jeff and, and say your goodbyes to him after the service today, that would be fantastic. Jeff, you, you jumped. You are a model. Uh, model citizens, wrong way, but a, a model. Um, Christ follower when it comes to church. You showed up, you said, how can I serve? And if you've been here for the, over the last, you know, six, seven months, you've seen Jeffrey serving in different areas all the time. He just said, how do, I'm not just going to take here and just be ministered to, I want to minister to people. And so we thank you so much for that, brother. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be praying for you as you, as you head, uh, head into your ministry in the Navy. All right. Guys, we are starting a new series this morning, and I am excited just about the branding. I mean, it's, it's so funky. It's so excited. If you can't read it, it says, dismantling myths of the modern mind. Dismantling myths of the modern mind. And what, we, what I mean by this title of this series is not just that we want to dismantle myths of the modern mind, but there are many myths, modern myths, that dismantle us. That, that take us apart. And so we want to analyze many of them. There, there's, you've maybe heard the, the old uh, joke or illustration of, of two fish swimming through the water and another fish swims by and he says to them, how's the water today? And then swims away. And one fish looks at the other and goes, what the heck is water? For many of us, that's what it's like to live in the culture that we live in. We accept certain things because that's just in, that's just in the air that we breathe. Um, whether it be the way we talk about politics, whether it be sexuality, whether it be uh, what we watch when it comes to Netflix and the stories that uh, Hollywood is telling us, music. Uh, and today what I want to talk about is dismantling our phones. No, no. <sighs> I can sense it. I can sense it in the room. Now, I understand the irony, because right now what I'm going to tell you to do is go to cachurch.info if you want to follow uh, the sermon today. If it helps you, if it, if it doesn't help you, if it's a distraction, don't do it. But if it's helpful, go to cachurch.info, hit sermons, town center, and all the, all the text that I'm going to be using, all the scripture, the, the, the points that I'll be making today, you will find them there. I'm going to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Again, it will be uh, on the, uh, online, but it'll also be behind me here. And out of respect for God's word, I'm going to invite you to stand. I'll be reading, and you'll see behind me, the New Living Translation. <laughs> Written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. It says, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, um, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. 
Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, Paul says, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation. Some, some versions say be sober. <laughs> be sober. Don't be, don't be drunk about it. Be very sober about um, your judgment, your evaluation of yourself, measuring yourselves by others? No, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. God, I pray you would speak to us this morning through this text, through reflection on, and I pray, God, that we would just be open to what your spirit would want to say to us this morning, that we would be uh, open to the counsel of your spirit, which is always done with comfort and love and, and uh, seeking out our flourishing and our joy and our hope and, and a deeper identity that can only be found in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Guys, you can take a seat. I, I, am, um, I am fully aware that I am stepping to the line of hypocrisy as I preach about this today. That my, my wife is not feeling well today. She's not here, but it, to, in my mind, it's almost strategic that she's not here <laughs> because she would say, I see you on your phone a lot. I see you looking at things online a lot. So this is something I'm telling you right now. I am walking through this as well. I think anyone who is involved in, in our culture at all is saying, where, where do I need to make cuts here? Where is this okay? Where is this not? In the age of the selfie, Oz Guinness has said this, I post, therefore I am. Or as Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith, and if you're not reading him, you should, he says, we are no longer seen doing something. We are doing something to be seen. We wonder, and we joke about this, we wonder, does an event actually take place if nobody posted about it, right? And even as, as a pastor, this is a nagging question, one that I did not go to seminary for. But when a great event happens, I think, is somebody posting? The, the world needs to know that we had this many people out, that we, that we, that we had this kind of success. Did somebody post it? And it's hard to imagine a culture where, where posts on Instagram, shared stories, and online interaction were not a part of our culture. It's hard, to, it's hard to think of that kind of culture now. It seems to be a part of the air that we breathe. Well, when Paul writes this message to Rome, he's obviously not thinking of social media and our interaction with technology, although he might be with, with their version of technology. But he writes this letter to a community of Christians living in a, in a, in this, a cultural center of the known world at the time, of a church in the middle of Rome. So when it came to language, when it came to fashion, when it came to religion, worldview, a, a set of cultural norms, it originated, it, it, was, it, it was empowered by Rome all over the empire. And, and these Christians are in the center of it. So these, these are Christians who, who were, were conquered by the righteousness of Christ, Paul has been arguing through the first 11 chapters, who've been welcomed in to this beautiful story along with the, the people of Israel. Now you Gentiles, you who are, who are not part of the chosen nation, you've been welcomed in to this story. And as those people, he's reminding them, you are part of a great story. Don't, don't give in to these tiny stories. 
because you're part of a much greater story. And so it's a reminder to not be overtaken by the surrounding culture, but to overtake culture with the grace and forgiveness that you have experienced. For Christians in Paul's day, Rome was was compared to their Babylon captivity from hundreds of years earlier, where they were overtaken by this other culture and they were told what gods they ought to worship and it was a part of the air that was breathed by that culture. And they were told, you know, really what's What's worthwhile is seeking out self-gratification and self-promotion. They were the the constant temptations of Babylon. They were the constant temptations of Rome. It was the culture one breathed in every day. And the, the way that Christ followers were meant to do battle with these gods and this culture was to remind themselves of the gospel. To remind themselves through ritual with community and service in community that they were part of something greater than what Rome could ever possibly offer them. It was an ongoing battle, and it still is. Now, here's the thing. Today's culture is not just out there. Today's culture is as far as your hand is. Everything that the culture wants to say to you and have you believe isn't just there when you walk out your house. It's there in your hand all the time. In fact, we don't even enter this room separated from that culture. Some of you are going to get notifications while I'm preaching. Come on! The outside world is getting in to this room right now. Today we live in what David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock in their book, Faith for Exiles, they call it Digital Babylon. It's not just out there. There there was a time where where culture um, could only grab a hold of us when we walked outside, but now it's, it's, it's infiltrating our hearts through our phones. It follows us everywhere. We look at, we read, we absorb, we get notifications. We find ourselves constantly concerned with what we know, who we know, and here's the big one, how we are known by others. That's our big pursuit. We have FOMO. Now, most of you probably don't know what FOMO is. And if you do, you're not about to yell it out because it means you're woke and you know what's going on in the world. FOMO, fear of missing out. FOMO. And we don't have time to say all that. We're in too much of a hurry. I got FOMO. You know what I'm saying. Fear of missing out. That's what we have. We want to know what's going on and we want to be a part of it. News comes at us fast and furious, whether it's a a tweet from a president that that gets everyone angry or a a pic of our bestie on Instagram, and we were like the third person to like it, which that's not very good for a bestie. You should be first. Be on top of that. What kind of friend are you? We find ourselves overtaken by phones. We used to be even able to escape bullies by getting into our homes, but we can't even do that anymore. We're still concerned about what people are saying. And if we're not careful, we may find that some of us are a ways down this cultural river already by a culture that calls us, calls all of this normal, and some would even say mandatory to be a part of it. If we're not careful, we may be living according to the myths of our culture without even questioning them, perhaps falling for false stories because they're a part of our everyday habits. Now, before we kind of dive further down this. I do want to differentiate between those who have a healthy hold on technology because I know, I know many of you do. Even in the past when I've said, hey, are you on Facebook? No, I don't do that. It's just not good for my soul. 
And I know my, my, my wife, Elena, she, at, at, at all expenses, she'll try not to go on Facebook because it just poisons her. She just she doesn't like what it does to her. So I want to differentiate between those who have, have a healthy hold on technology and those who allow technology to have an unhealthy hold on them. In other words, the difference between mastering technology and all that that entails and being mastered by technology, being mastered by this, this world. You know, it used to be that we didn't have clocks. We knew it was dinner time, not because the, the clock struck a certain time. It's because our, our stomach growled when it's dinner time. We knew that the, the work time was done because we did the work that needed to be done and we can be done now. It's over. We could, we could move on. We knew it was time to get up because the sun got up, so it's time to get up. Town clocks were then invented actually by monks so that they would help the townspeople remember that it's time to pray. So they wouldn't get so busy they'd forget about it. But over the centuries, since we started marking time, time went from serving us and moving by what we asked of it to us being ruled by it. Now we, we bow to the clock and we fill it up with so many appointments we don't have time to pray. We're too busy. We created an instrument that we are now slaves to. I would suggest that since 2007, when the iPhone emerged, in many ways, we as a culture have gone from being masters to being mastered. What never even occurred to us as a need 20 years ago, many of us think is indispensable now. I mean, no one was thinking 20 years ago, I need a grainy shot of my dessert. I need like a bad photo of my dessert. Now our ice cream will melt while we're trying to take a picture of it so people know we had this fantastic meal. Well, like most things, we're not the first people to have to deal with something like this, to, to face the pressures of, of cultures and, and customs that would draw life away from us, to be mastered by those things possibly that the, the world calls a necessity and which the gospel calls possibly dangerous distractions. Paul maybe wants to give you and I, maybe the Holy Spirit through Paul this morning, maybe wants to give us a bit of a shake and perhaps ask whether or not we find ourselves being mastered. Not just by technology, but specifically, I think, through the, the area of social media and the living out of that kind of culture. Because when we're mastered by technology, it draws our worship. It draws our worship. When we're mastered by technology, it draws our worship. We find in Paul's words some, some reordering of our lives. So just a reminder of what Paul said here. He says, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you. I plead with you to give your bodies. Now, when Paul says bodies, don't, don't get that Western idea of he's divvying up your physical body with, with your soul or your spirit or your person. No, no, no. That's a very Western idea. When he says your body, he means all of you. Every aspect of you ought to give it all to God. Because of all that he's done for you. All of it. Your thought life, your physical life, give it to God. Let them be living and holy sacrifice. The kind we will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. In light of God's work on your behalf, remember that your lives belong to something greater and cannot be confined to what many of us are willing to confine our lives to. Your entire existence, your entire being has been brought into this story that Paul's talking about. Now, some of us don't like that. 
That idea, give your whole life as a living sacrifice. Because you know what? Something dies when there's a sacrifice. (laughs) We we all read read verses like this. It's like, yeah, give your life as a holy and pleasing sacrifice. Well, things are going to die if there's a sacrifice. Something's going on the altar and you're leaving something there. It's not getting up. So the question for us this morning is, what is it that we are unwilling to put on the altar? What are we unwilling to leave there? Things usually get hurt when we sacrifice something. It's not a comfortable word. And for many of us, we're happy to say, I love the idea of salvation. I love the idea of forgiveness. But sacrifice? So you can, you can give me all that, but you can't touch this. You can have all that, but when it comes to my finances, when it comes to my sexuality, when it comes to my, what I do online, you can't have that. Which is a, an interesting response to salvation, in my mind. Paul says the only appropriate response, the only appropriate response to being bought by the sacrifice of Christ is to sacrifice everything in his name. Everything. God is a jealous God, not because he's petty. He's jealous because he doesn't see, like seeing the ones he loves pulled from him to distracting, destroying things that will master us. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. Whether it's sex or work, technology, the fact is many of us do, myself included, we approach our phones in a way that looks a lot like worship. And maybe you're going to say, oh, come on. You're, you're overdoing it. I would say smells like, looks like, tastes like. It is. Some of the questions we might want to ask ourselves this morning are things like this. There's a bit of a, a test of tech devotion for us this morning. A test of tech worship. First is time. How much time do you spend on your devices, on your phones, on social media? Are, are you checking it right now? How many, do you, do you guys have that thing on, on your iPhone where it tells you how many hours you've spent? How many of you have disabled that? <laughs> you, you don't want to know. Maybe you've turned that option off. The draw of our technology, the, the anticipation and the draw towards it that many of us have, this consistent need to check it, literally in the middle of conversations with other people. That's really interesting. Yeah, I know. I feel you, man. This draw that, we, that it takes precedent over actual community. <laughs> Man, I've witnessed people sitting next to each other texting each other. <laughs> Three, concern for attention. How much of our identity is caught up in what people are saying about us? How many likes we got for a photo? Whether people were upset by, by a news article that we posted. The, the many voices and the, the opinions that have more influence on our hearts than the gospel that bought us. Four. The priority. There was a great article years back written by a guy named Sky Jatani called Waking Up Next to the Kardashians. And his point was this. Before anything else, what most people do they grab their phone and they check the news. What's going on? Are we more interested? Is, is that how we want to start our day? Or do we want to start our day by 
placing ourselves firmly in the grace of Christ and saying, this is your day. This is the day you have made. Everything that comes today is all finding, is all within the framework of the gospel, is all within the framework of my salvation, is all within the framework that you've written this story to the end. We get drawn off that story by, our, by making our, our online presence and what we read online a priority. And the fifth, separation anxiety. Even as I'm saying it, you're thinking, where is my phone? The thought of being separated from it brings us close to an, an existential crisis. We're close to the Davidic psalm pleading, take not thy holy iPhone from me. It's what Paul warns us against in verse 2 here. This, that this is a copy of the behavior and the customs of the world. And they don't lead to life. It isn't life. It's enslavement. The gospel at its heart is proclaiming a release from enslavement. And we've got this little device that draws us so strongly. That's why as Christians who, who are called to shine the light of the gospel on the myths of the world, we don't just say, we don't just come out with rules for people and say, that's bad, this is good, this is what God wants, this is what he hates. We say, this is, this is not life-giving and this is life-giving. We want to introduce you into something that gives you life. The ultimate goal of, of sharing our faith is not so we can wield truth like a weapon with pride. It's so that we can say, Here's such a, this is such a better story. This, this freedom of not worrying about what others are saying, what others are posting, the identity that other people are trying to throw on us and telling me to follow. Don't you want to be free from that? That's what the gospel invites us into. Because a bunch of rules, it's not very attractive. Freedom from enslavement, that's attractive. That's why Jesus came. In, a, in an interview... On, uh, on This American Life, Ira Glass interviewed three teenagers who, who could not disconnect from their phones, even while he's trying to communicate with them. He had a hard time. In case you're wondering who Ira Glass is, I thought that would, that would help. Ira, Ira. Talking about the importance of, of giving and receiving on Instagram photos, one of the girls, Julia, says this, it's a social obligation. A like is more than affirmation. A comment, where is it? A comment is more than a compliment. They are signals of social significance. You're a nobody if you don't have it. And the girls who post like and comment are focused not on the picture, but on the social activity. It's like I'm a brand, says Julia. Talk about taking away your worth. You're trying to promote yourself, says Ella. And, and Ira says, and you're the product. And, and we can snicker and we, and we can judge at this, this generation that seems to be addicted to phones and online presence, 2.4 billion people are on Facebook. The majority of us in this room, over a certain age, are on Facebook. And I mean, that's the old people network now. <laughs> but between Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, almost all of us in this room are online. Possibly being mastered and getting our identity. 
For me, I can remember when the internet showed up. I, I think I've talked to you guys about that before. I remember being in my dad's office at our house in, Van- in East Vancouver, and my dad hooked it up, and with anticipation, we're like, there's perspiration, we're really all excited, and he pressed the button. Ding, gong, 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 gong. Little did I know at that time. I mean, the, the effect of the internet did not hit like lightning. It was more like the, the, the frog in the pot as the heat is turned up, as the culture around us slowly changed, and it just became a part of the culture that we're living in. Forgetting there was a time where we didn't find so much significance by what we found and how we interacted online. Most of us have accepted the water we're swimming in because the, the existence without it to many seems parochial and anti-technology and, and out of touch. Now, some of you, as I said, have made very strategic, calculated approaches to social media, and I commend you for it. And I would encourage all of us in the room with wisdom, to, to take on wisdom as we approach. But for others, technology works on our hearts it works on our minds without even knowing it, without, without even paying attention to it. And for some, sadly, it may mean that we, we simply allow ourselves to take, take in whatever we want. Or, or not even, it's not even that we want it, it's there, so why not take it in? It's like when Lord Mallory was asked why he clowned Mount Everest, because it was there. Why do you go all over the internet? Because it's there. Because we're so bored. <laughs> we're looking for something to give us some joy. So for some of us, it means we go wherever we need to, on, we, wherever, wherever we want to on the internet. But for many, it's not what we're looking at on our phones. It's simply that we're always looking at our phones. It's not even the content for many of us, possibly. It's just that we can't get away from it. Paul says, don't let the world and its customs conform you to its way of thinking, or I would argue its way of not thinking. You don't want to? It drags you away from God, what God's will is for you. His good, Paul says, his good, his pleasing and perfect will. And it can lead us into a judgmental, broken, <laughs> seeking out identity. There are ways that an unchecked, unmastered use of technology, social media, can do a work on us. And this, this is a bit of a heart check as well. We, we talked about a test of, of technical devotion. Here, here, here we look at a, a, some of the, the tests of, of the, the effects of tech devotion on our lives. This is what it does to us. First of all, it makes us the hero and others competition. It makes us the hero and it makes others competition. The primary myth that our phones tell us every day is that you are the center of the universe. Everything is pointed towards you. No wonder we, we, we like to be on our phones so much. Nothing else has the same effect putting us at the center of everything. My wife isn't doing it. <laughs> She's not telling me I'm at the center of everything. My kids certainly aren't telling me I'm the center of everything. So maybe if I post a picture that people like, I'll feel good for five minutes. Secondly, it takes us away from thankfulness and moves us towards envy. Oh, something happens in our hearts when we drink too much from this cup of social media. When we look at the carefully, carefully curated version of other people. Even our friends 
begin to become. <laughs> it gives us a warped version of reality because we, we post when we're up and we, we scroll when we're down. We post when we think people need to hear this story. This is so great. I'm out for dinner. I'm on vacation. People should know about this. When do we scroll? When we're getting our oil changed? <laughs> when we're waiting in a long line at the grocery store? When our child won't go to sleep, it's two in the morning, and we're online going, their life is so much better than mine. Even our friends become competition. We see them on their vacation again. How do they go on vacation all the time? Don't they have any response? Well, they must not be very good parents. How can they afford that? It moves us from thankfulness to envy. Third, it draws us away from service and towards self-service. Self-promotion over communal devotion. It closes us off from the world and it allows us to fire shots from behind our devices. To divvy up, this is my team, that's your team. It promotes solitude and self-service. And lastly, in this area, it makes us liars. It makes us liars. We want people to understand us as who we portray rather than who we are. In her book, American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers, Nancy Jo Sales re records this. These girls talking. She says, the one girl says, I can't survive without it. I stay up at, all night looking at my phone. It's funny it's called a selfie because half the time it doesn't even look like you. So you're getting people to like this picture of you that isn't even real. It makes us liars. Churches fall into the danger of every single one of those categories. Churches need to be very careful of how they decide to use social media. And I'll admit we've fallen short on this over the years. That we want to portray that we're a certain kind of church, that we've pulled off a certain amount of things. A lot of things that we could accomplish even if Jesus wasn't in the equation. Look what we did. Even the church needs to be careful. Selective sharing, curating pictures and stories that portray the life that we wish we lived. And it's an intricate game because then we get this other side of the coin that says, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm better than that. I'm going to post shots of my messy house. And I, I'm not impressed by you guys. So this is me in the morning, man. Whew. These are my kids. They don't have it all together. But isn't that just another form? Isn't that just a spiritual form of saying, look how much better I am than you are? It's intricate. When we are mastered by technology, it draws our worship and our devotion from Christ and towards ourselves. Our devotion away from community. It also, the second thing I want to talk about is it draws us from community and it draws us from service of others. It, Paul goes on to say this in, in, in Romans 12. It says, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of others, marrying your uh, measuring yourself by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Paul says, we need to be on guard of things that draw us from healthy self-evaluation in light of the gospel. The new life we have been invited into and, and, and away from our identity that is found there. We need to be on guard of those things, the practices and customs that draw us away from being part of a community. That polarize, that, that vilify and tell us that we are the center. 
Because that's diametrically opposed to what we are called to be as the body of Christ. A loving, serving community on mission with the gospel. And Instagram and and Facebook, they, they feed our egos and allow us to never face disagreement head on. But just with quick, pithy responses online. We receive news that is curated to feed our beliefs and the views that we already think are right. People who disagree with us are not just in disagreement, they're the enemy. Have we, have we all noticed how this has changed even in the last five years? Today, news is less about information, it's more about affirmation. Just to say, you got it, don't worry, just keep, believe, keep believing what you're believing. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> Is it loud enough? Now we need to think of this. We need to remember this. All of us who go online to debate, and there's a strong temptation to debate online. I've fallen asleep at times or had a problem falling asleep at times because someone was so wrong online. They were just so wrong. We need to remember when we are in discussion online that that person that you are debating with, your greatest desire is to sit across from the table with them and Jesus when Jesus returns. Your greatest desire is to be their brother or their sister in Christ. They are someone who has offered the same forgiveness, the same grace, the same sacrifice that you were. And so as we, as we engage online, the, the language, oh man, the language that I've heard from Christians, the language of disdain and, and stealing away identity and dismissing people breaks my heart. And I know it pains the Father's heart. That's not the custom of heaven. That is a copy of the custom of the world. We don't function that way. The truth of the gospel and what it means for the world means nothing if, it, if it's boastfully and powerfully wielded like a hammer. It's our love that should bring the kingdom change, not, not a, a proud drawing of lines between us and them. If we're not careful, we find ourselves drawn away from, from the words that, that Paul's painting here in, in verse, verses 14 to 18 of this chapter. He says, bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God... Listen, imagine you're online. This is the framework for every interaction you have online. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people or those who you deem ordinary. And don't think you know it all. Oh my goodness. Shouldn't that be like the subtitle under Facebook? Don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Of everybody. No one is below you. The ground is very even at the foot of the cross. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. This is the instruction for Christians. This is the rule for human engagement for those who see the world through the eyes of the gospel, whether it's in person or whether it's online. 
It's a warning against those who would put their own experience of grace and forgiveness in Christ on pause so that they can win an argument online. In James chapter 3, verse 10, James, the Apostle James wrote this, And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out of both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. Often, you would never know that some have tasted the living water by the poison they spew out online. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. And it comes from a life that in big and small ways has been mastered. Has, been, has, been, has drawn our worship and, and devotion at the detriment of healthy, life-giving community. And a healthy expression of our faith of who we are in, in Christ. But as I, as, I, as I conclude this message... I don't simply want to dismiss our hunger for attention and acceptance and our, our propensity for, for misaimed worship simply as sin. It is sin, but I think what it's showing us is a spiritual craving that we all have. There is a spiritual craving that we all have, a universal spiritual craving. Trevor Wax, Christian writer, says this. He says, he says what do we want when we want attention? What are we hoping for when we aspire to win this game of being noticed? What if buried in our ambition is a desire for something more, someone else? That would explain the ongoing, persistent disappointment because it's never answered. It's never fully satisfied. The ongoing checking of, of likes and comments, seeking approval. Again, James K.A. Smith asks this, what if we were wired not to be liked, but to be loved. And not by many, but by one. Could that explain why all the attention is never enough? Jesus would say, yes. <laughs> yes, that's it. Stop settling for a, a deflating, two-dimensional life of belonging and worth that, that then when what you are actually thirsting for is the empowering, identity-bolstering love of Christ. And once it's accepted, let it be expressed in every interaction. The deepest love and therefore our ability to love well comes from that understanding. That the deepest love you could experience has already been expressed for you. John, in, in, in his letter, 1 John 4, he says, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another. For love comes from God. And anyone who, who loves is a child of God and knows God. Do you love well online? Would people go, that person is a child of God? I can tell. I can tell just by the way they're interacting. But anyone who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. The saying is, people who have never seen God will have an understanding, a concept of the love of God if those who claim his love love each other. 
<laughs> and love other people. What a, what a beautiful three-dimensional story that is for three-dimensional people. Smith goes on to say, the danger, of course, is that so many scripts today invite us to become not characters, but models. People who are seen but have no story, whose generic stares have no identity behind them. How opposed to the mission of God, opposed to the mission of our lives when we are in Christ, opposed to the mission of the church. The father of the prodigal, uh, of prodigal sons and daughters who falls over himself to embrace us, who looks deeper than any other soul ever could, who, who loves more deeply and with more acceptance than you could ever convince someone else to fulfill in you. This love will save you from ongoing, relentless, unsatisfactory search for acceptance and appreciation from the mob because they were never meant to give you that kind of fulfillment. You were, you were never meant to be, to be appeased and find identity in something so petty. It's found in the love of God expressed through Jesus Christ. In that, you, you, you want some thumbs up online? We are, we are welcome to be called children of the king of creation. There's nothing greater. There's nothing deeper. Man, one of the, one of the reasons the church is so important the gathering of the church is so important is that we are continually reminded of what healthy, loving, gospel-shaped acceptance is. Community as it ought to be expressed and experienced. And that's why we are called to not give up on gathering together, to eating together, to worshiping together, to taking communion together. It's through it's through. Ongoing ritual where we give ourselves handles in, in our culture to find true meaning and true identity. So just before we go into to communion, just a, a few things to walk away with today. Maybe some homework. Some, some response items. Suggestions. First, I would say this. Maybe you need to carve out time daily, weekly, monthly, where the rhythm of our life includes technology just being turned off. You, you may find there's a whole bunch of books on your shelf. You may find there's people in the room <laughs> that you can engage with. <laughs> Carve out time daily, weekly, or monthly, or all of those things to turn technology off. Secondly, carve out space. Maybe actual rooms in your house where technology doesn't happen. The bedroom would be a good start. Phone free. My alarm clock's on my phone. <laughs> Something causes you to sin, lob it off, Jesus said. <laughs> Put your phone in the kitchen and buy an old-fashioned alarm clock. They've been around for a long time. I would say this. If you're going to shape your intake of news online... Seek out voices you find to be full of truth and grace. Not simply a dismissal of every other view, but one that can still speak with integrity and kindness, even of those they oppose. And the last one I would say is this. If you follow people on social media who as a default post things that 
that build up an anxiety in you. They engage in in debate online that degrades people and cuts people down and forgets that each of us have been made in the image of God. Unfriend them. Unfriend them. It's worth it. Two weeks ago, I, I gave my parting words on Facebook. <laughs> and I stepped off Facebook, canceled Netflix. And I tell you, there's something it does in your heart. I wasn't even working on the message yet, and I did that. <sighs> Later on, you can um, tell me how much you like that idea. Um, now, I, I immediately found that then I couldn't post things to our, our church site when I wanted to get news out, so I had to work through that. But I'll tell you, there's, there's something where there's a burden lifted. There's, there's an enslavement where the shackles have been chopped. They've been broken. And so it may be that some of you are masters over it. I get it. I, I, I know my heart. I know that I want, I, want, I want to see people respond when I post something. So it's something I, I'm continuing to work through as well. But I would say if, if it's stealing life from you, cut it off. Get rid of it. We got by for centuries without it. The church grew. People were discipled. People read books. They got news in more than a picture and half a sentence in broken English. With, with abbreviations of things half of us don't know anymore. They actually read full articles. Now we look at the picture and it's like, continue. Not, why, I, that's too much. You should have told me in the first sentence. Too much information. Those are some of the things I would challenge you with over this next week. But guys, as I mentioned, one of the ways that we navigate through our culture, we navigate through the kinds of things that are saying, this is who you are and this is what you need. This is mandatory. One of the ways that we grab handles in the middle of that till Christ returns is through ritual, is through the practice of worship and gathering together, through community and through taking communion together. When we take communion together, we are reminded that we are part of such a larger story than than the things that we allow to nail us down. When we we take the bread and we take the juice, we're reminded that, that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, the night before he would be taken, whipped, accused of things that he never did, abandoned by his friends, to be taken to the cross for our sakes, The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we take bread, we we are eating in remembrance of what Christ has done for you and I. And then after that, he took the cup After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed by my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink. That means the strength of our relationship with God is based not on what we pull off. It's based on the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. That's where our covenant, our ongoing, eternal, unbreakable relationship with God lies. And so when we take communion together, we're remembering what Jesus did. We're remembering that this is all leading somewhere and we're part of a beautiful story and we're practicing this until we will eat this face to face with our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is practice for a great meal. This is a clarifying. This is, this is fixing our compass. 
as we continue to navigate these waters of our culture as the church of Jesus Christ.